and welcome to The Recapables. I am not Bill Simmons, nor am I Mallory Rubin. I am Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer. And I'm here to talk about billions with not Mallory Rubin and not Bill Simmons. It's Allison Herman Stafford, Earth Ringer. Allison, what's up? Not Mallory Rubin is actually my official name. <laughs> if only we could all have that. We're talking today about the fifth episode of the third season of Billions. Let's do this thing. You got me. I'm here with Dollar Bill. He wants to short Mendham Pharmaceuticals. They're about to draw the ire of the libtards for cruelty and the street for missing targets. You use that word so I feel rage and then tell myself not to allow that to make me predisposed against your idea. Smart. And would work if I hadn't studied Agrippa, which I have. Regardless, I support this if compliance approves. Fuck yeah. Okay, Allison, we find ourselves nearly at the halfway mark of what has been, I would say, a very plot-heavy, very fascinating, very pop-culture-filled third season of Billions. Normally in this spot, we do the 42-second recap. I am incapable of doing that, so I'm going to throw it right to you. 42 seconds on the clock. Break down for me what happened in this episode. Okay, I've been doing my vocal exercises. Chuck and Axe race to get their hands at a key piece of evidence in Axe's upcoming trial, which is a sample slide of the toxin Axe used to poison planted ice juice drinkers, which is in the possession of an oncologist you may recognize from season one, Dr. Gilbert. Meanwhile, Sacker and Connerty go head to head in court when Connerty starts wondering why convicted criminal Lawrence Boyd is now not in prison. Uh, Wendy unsuccessfully referees a playground fight between Dollar Bill and Axe Capital's new chief compliance officer, Ari Spiros. And finally, Taylor goes to the Bay Area and quote-unquote makes an investment with a nerdy venture capitalist who bears (laughs) an uncanny resemblance to comedian Mike Birbiglia. Wow, that was exceptional. Oh my goodness. And yet so much to unpack from there. Where would you like to start? What should we be breaking down here? Because there are essentially, there's an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, a D plot, maybe even an E plot. Yeah, I really did not appreciate just how dense and plot heavy this show was until it was part of my job to catalog the various plot machinations of a single episode. Yeah, you don't really realize how much work you have to do until you start taking notes during an episode. It's kind of an impressive thing. They're they're writing these episodes every week, and there is just an enormous amount of information that's going into all of them. Oh, absolutely. And I will say, you know, as a TV critic, I encounter a lot of episodes or a lot of shows of television that, shall we say, do not earn their run times. Mm -hmm. And I would say there was a solid 55 minutes of plot, if not maybe like an hour and a half of plot that they just squeezed into 55 minutes. So kudos to the Billions writers. Completely true. So so where do you want to start? You want to start with uh, Axe and Dr. Gilbert? Is that where we should go? Sure. I think that's the most important to the sort of overall arc of the season, which I guess is the attorney's office prepping to bring Axe to trial, which I'm assuming will be the last, like, maybe third of the season mm-hmm. will be the actual courtroom machinations. But yeah, this is the the fallout of the ice juice plot, which has taken up a lot of the season. Yeah, the way they tell this part of the story is actually pretty interesting because we essentially go inside of Axe's mind and he visualizes what he believes Dr. Gilbert actually did at this time. And there's a lot of um, feints, a lot of false fronts on all all this imagining where he looks at someone, someone tells a story, and then he visualizes the story in his own way. And so he determines that he doesn't believe Dr. Gilbert disposed of this slide that you referenced because he has the sixth sense. How does Axe have this ability? I mean, I think Billions is fond of these like weird narrative devices and twists and turns. They obviously did a flashback last week. I found this episode really interesting because... You know, for all the the plot importance that we have here, it's a really essential window into Axe's character because the reason why he has so much difficulty getting a read on this person, which is something that's really valuable to what he does, is that this doctor 
is not motivated by either money or power. And that does not compute to Axe's brain, which is really fascinating to watch. I mean, he doesn't know how to react to or anticipate the moves of someone who appears to be on some level genuinely altruistic and not interested in the leverage that Axe usually exercises. I mean, he's obviously, he's still a Billions character. So he at one point says that me being a doctor is too important to me and fuck it the world (laughs) for me to just step away from the medical profession. But, you know, he does have a very different set of motivations than we're used to seeing operate on this show. Yeah, I think that this plotline in particular does something that is also emblematic of Billions, which is it brings back a character from like 11 episodes ago that I hadn't thought about at all. I mean, I, I just Dr. Gilbert is somebody who had vanished from my memory and he was a season two figure. And obviously the way the, the way that he intersects with the Donnie character and the way that he withheld the treatment from Donnie and then the fact that Chuck has an encounter with Dr. Gilbert in this episode and Connerty is connected to him. It felt like the first time in a while that those A, B, and C plots were sort of fitting together. Did it feel that way for you? It did. And it also felt, you know, you talk about Billions Long Game. And I think this is a show that by its very premise walks a very thin line between glorifying these people's behavior, which is obviously very enjoyable to watch and, you know, criticizing it, which is theoretically what it maybe should do to stay on the right side of the moral gray area. And one of the things it does in this episode to really emphasize that is that you know, this doctor we met the first time because he treated Donnie Khan, who was an axe cap guy who had possibly flipped to the feds and axe basically winked at this doctor and said, don't give him this experimental treatment so that way he will die of this uh, terminal cancer before he will have a chance to testify, which is a horrible thing that Axe did. And now Chuck does his own horrible thing, which is go to this guy's widower and tell him this information in a weaponized fashion to encourage him to help Chuck in his quest to find this doctor. And, you know, both Chuck and Axe are obviously despicable, but I think a really important thing that Billions does is show you the continued collateral damage of these people's actions, which is a widower who has been living with this for a while and is now freshly re-traumatized as part of this ongoing conflict between these two men. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing to keep bringing back all these figures. There's another figure who's brought back into the fold here who also interconnects, I think, with Axe and Chuck pretty seamlessly, and that's Lawrence Boyd, played by the great playwright Eric Bogosian. And Boyd also fits into some of this machinations. What did you think about um, Boyd getting sprung from the joint and uh, how they told that story? Well, first of all, great segue. Thank you. Second of all, I mean, Lawrence Boyd is just a the way the gravitas, the quality of Eric Bogosian's voice is just so great. That's I love having fabulous. him on the show. Me too. He gets a great line, which is that he likes the simple pleasures in life: butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth, and Teeb coming into view on his yacht that he uh, blackmails Chuck into getting for him. A perfect so. Boogie Nights reference. Oh yeah, and I mean, I enjoy him as a player on the show. I think the subplot that he's a part of, which is Connerty kind of realizing that his boss is more akin to Axe than adversarial with him or is adversarial with Axe, but, you know, maybe because they're more similar than they are different is a really important long game development for this show. I mean, basically, Boyd doesn't do a whole lot in this episode. He says no to Connerty's, you know, plea for him to help him expose Chuck's potential ethical violations. But he's just such a great Billions figure. I don't know. I just 
like he doesn't necessarily add a lot in terms of moving the plot forward, but the show is so precisely observed in its character studies of someone who, I guess Boyd is the head of like a Goldman Sachs type firm that's not quite as dirty as Axe Cap and is a little more genteel, but that obviously involves its own set of white collar crimes. It does. I mean, his general snake-like charm I found very um, energizing in this episode, though. You know, he's quoting Merchant of Venice, I never did repent for good, nor shall not now. And he has this a slickness and an, a, a true New York affectation that I think neither Damian Lewis nor Paul Giamatti can really lay claim to. You know, he is he is feels like he's in the bones of the city. And so I loved having him back there and I liked having him as this connective tissue. I thought it was a, a slightly preposterous that Connerty thought about Boyd because he had a conversation with his stewardess paramour in the morning after a night together, and then that made him think about flying on private jets and Boyd's private jet having lost it, having been in prison, and then he goes to his Claire Danes and Homeland big board of conspiracies and how everything fits together, and then realizes that he needs to talk to this person. What did you make of all that? Look, if a swatch of green paint can solve all of True Detective season (laughs) one... This wasn't, you know, the biggest leap of logic that's ever happened on Billions. You know, this is a show whose central, whose one of their three central characters is the wife of one character and the professional colleague of the other. And this has somehow, you know, sustained itself two and a half seasons and counting. So logical leaps are Billions over. I will also say the last time we saw Lawrence Boyd, he was wearing a janitor's outfit <laughs> uh, when he was doing his work duty while in prison. And it felt really good to see him in a suit in a, you know, enormous library, probably somewhere on the Upper East Side again. He seems comfortable. He did. You, you also tipped off a little bit of a strong segue here for Wendy and everything happening at Axe Capital. I will say this was by far my favorite part of the episode, the way Same. that Wendy... Dollar Bill and Spiros intersected with a dash of wags on the side. Dollar Bill and Spiros are obviously engaged in this war between the sort of dirty pool that goes into the high-level trading at Axe and the compliance aspect that Spiros has been brought in to oversee. Dollar Bill tries to push a trade across the line. Spiros identifies something there that is untoward. The SEC, yes, and uh, uses it as an opportunity to blow up that situation and to embarrass Dollar Bill. Wendy thrusts herself into the middle of this and attempts a, I don't know, an intervention of sorts that is actually just an inflaming of her own uh, sadness and depression, which then leads to a trip to Wags's office in which she um, starts drinking brown liquor with uh, Wags. Like, and like the Mad Men alum she is. Truly. Good good call. It, it did have a whiff of 2018 Mad Men, this whole segment, you know, shouting in an office and then, you know, decompressing with some booze in an office. Uh, what'd you think of Dollar Bill, Spiros, Wags, Wendy, and everything happening at Axe? I mean, I love this. I thought it was almost like a miniature, dinkier, even stupider version of the Axe-Chuck tug-of-war. I mean, these are two men who are ultimately, you know, maybe a little more similar than they are different. They have some very obvious, you know, surface digressions, but they're both pompous assholes <laughs> and they end up, you know, at odds in this one situation. And I just love we get a Daniel summit. We get some truly terrible behavior on both sides. But I would like to say you had your own uh, plot nitpicking 
Mine is, why on earth would a Pollyanna-ish whistleblower go not to a member of the media? They wouldn't try to call up like Jody Cantor at the New York Times to be like, hey, my company is doing illegal testing on these animals. They would instead tip off a hedge fund bro (laughs) (laughs) and be like, please use this to insider trade (laughs) and get rich. And I will also get a duffel bag of cash while I'm clutching a bunny. Yeah, that that, that was slightly implausible. In the the universe of uh, implausible elements of billions, that one, I think that that hits the mark. There's so, there was a, so much in that part of the episode. You mentioned the Danielle uh, meeting between Axe and Wags and Spiros, in which Spiros agrees to be loyal to the family, but then also compels them to force Dollar Bill to apologize. There's this fa- fascinating and bizarre showdown between Dollar Bill and Wags and, and uh, Axe in the street, in which Dollar Bill strips down. There's Dollar Bill crashing his uh, SUV into Spiros's precious Porsche. There's kind of a fireworks episode of the show, and and that leads me to the fireworks that happen between Taylor and Oscar. You know, the aforementioned Mike Birbiglia that you mentioned. What do you make of that that turn to the? I don't know, to the the seductive for Taylor. I loved it so much. I mean, Taylor, as has been mentioned many times on this podcast, is arguably the MVP of the show, was definitely the MVP of the second season, played a really big role in this show, shifting gears from pretty good but finding its feet to really hitting its rhythm. But I think one of the things that we might want from Taylor is that we've seen them operate in a professional context that they're obviously fantastic at and play such an important role in. But we've never really seen them in a personal context, which is partly, you know, it fits in their character. They're very severe. They clearly have a very strict boundary between their private and public life. But it was just so great to see something from them that was not professional. And also, I guess I did have a little bit of an issue with the Mike Birbiglia character and that we're kind of told that he's this like wonky tech guy who can't deal with small talk. But because he's Mike Birbiglia, who's just an avuncular dude, he comes across like pretty normal to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's pretty charming, actually, in his own Birbiglian way. I also wanted to ask, do you know what tech billionaire he's supposed to be, you know, a take on or making fun of? You know, it's funny. Initially, I had forgotten about the James Walt character who died in the previous episode. And so when we were introduced to him, I thought he was meant to be a slightly Elon Muskian type of guy. But then his shift into sort of venture philanthropy had me slightly confused. I don't I'm not a hardcore hedge fund watcher. Um, so I, I couldn't quite identify who he was supposed well, to be. I actually, neither is Oscar because, as Taylor says, VCs are just hedge fund managers who can quote the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah, I had that down for my best quote of the uh, episode. Yeah, same. I kind of I kind of jumped the gun there. No worries. Also, what game were they playing that lured Taylor back into the house? Oh, that's a real discontinued game called Netrunner that I looked up. It was created by the same guy who made Magic the Gathering. But oh. I guess... You know, that was part of the nerd bona fides was like, not only are they playing a sort of Catan-like card slash board slash strategy game, it's also a discontinued one. And I also thought it was a very sweet romantic gesture that Oscar figured out what Taylor's alternative plans were. I agree. I also, you know, I'm going to go from one wine moment to the next. You know, they share a glass of wine, which then leads to their romantic interlude set to one of my favorite Echo and the Bunnymen songs. Then there was another one moment in the aforementioned Danielle meeting with Spiros, and I'd, I'd like I'd like to highlight that as my uh, most scarring scene. That was mine too. Oh wow, this is perfect. <laughs> it um, was unanimous. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that Spiros says there, particularly that's some white berg 
fleshy yellow apple, notes of starfruit. Uh, that that made me want to hurt myself. That was not good. I mean, the way Spiros's gourmandism is wielded as a weapon against his character. I mean, the the fact that he's a coffee nerd, the fact that he is that weird cappuccino machine in his office, the fact that even you know extending to the sports car. One of the biggest lines in my notes is when he steps out and he he's not only driving a sports car, which obviously you know Wendy drives a Maserati, Chuck drives an extremely expensive car for a U.S. attorney. But it's the fact that he steps out and he's wearing an honest-to-God racer jacket oh, for his God. commute to work. <laughs> it's it's the most specifically loathsome detail on what is already a very loathsome character. But yes, when they go to Danielle, he not only drinks his wine, he slurps it for like an extended 10-second period. It was just awful. And I will say, relative to last week, this was a less scarring episode overall. We did not have any full frontal nudity, which has somehow not been the case for like the majority (laughs) of uh, episodes this season. But yeah, not only in that scene do we get the weird uh, wine gargling, I guess you might call it, we also get Wags uh, miming breastfeeding, which neither you nor the listeners can see my face, but it is like full cringe right now. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Mike Birbiglia, but I'm not totally sure I needed topless Mike Birbiglia. That wasn't like on my list of demands for se- for episode five, season three of Billions. So let's talk a little bit about the best quotes this week. As usual, there are probably 500 candidates, many of them larded with pop culture references. You mentioned VC is just a traitor who can quote from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, early on, we see Dake and he says to Connerty, failure is getting to become a familiar refrain with you. Don't let it become your anthem. Uh, I thought that was a typically Dakian proposition, you know, something that is sweeping and meant to be power packed with arrogance. But there's also like a little bit of, um, I don't know, he's 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 missing a gear somehow. Well, I've noted this in my notes. It's that he doesn't have either at this point the moral high ground because he's compromised and is now colluding with Chuck. He doesn't have the moral high ground or the actual gravitas like, I don't know, Jock Jeffcoat shall we say, <laughs> to pull off bullying his uh, subordinate. And there are a lo- there's actually a lot of, like, almost good, bad writing, like writing that is good because it is an actual awkward, bad line of dialogue that it's used to highlight how dislikable someone is. Yes. The other one I had was compliance must be complied with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like people who don't know how to speak out loud talking. And the best part is that Spiros, so this is a line that he says to Dollar Bill and then forces Dollar Bill to say to him as part of Dollar Bill's public apology. He's so proud of it. He thinks it's so clever, which is one of my favorite, you know, character gestures that a show or a movie can do to just undermine a character by showing that they take an inordinate amount of pride in something that there's really not much to be proud of there. Would you say there was too much Spiros in this episode? I mean, any Spiros is too much Spiros because he's a loathsome person who, as Mallory Rubin is rightly fond of reminding the listeners to this podcast, is a rapist in addition to just being a dislikable person. That's a good point. Yeah. The contrast between him and Dollar Bill, I thought, was very illuminating. Yeah. Dollar Bill is also a dirtbag of a high order. And yet somehow I find myself rooting for him purely by dint of wit, I think. It was funny when they had their showdown. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about some of the quotes there. I Here's, here's an example of something that Dollar Bill said that I was pretty moved by, even though it's a deplorable statement. If we were in prison, I would wrench you out for a fucking scoop of mashed potatoes at the top of his lungs in the middle of the trading floor. You know, Dollar Bill's a bad dude. Spiros is a bad dude. But if you're going to have two bad dudes insulting one another, I thought that was kind of a high level version of the insult. I mean, my favorite, it's not high level, but it precedes that by a little bit where he yells at Spiros as an insult. 
you motherfucking needle-dicked six-figure <laughs> pants shitter, which just get me to the point in my life where I'm using six-figure as an insult and not just a factual description uh, of someone's income, and I think I've gotten to a, a good place in my life. Really good stuff by Dolly. But later in that meeting, he um, also mentions, I never did, which is how I stayed married to two women, referring to therapy, which I thought was pretty good callback to his, oh, yeah. his dual I, life, his Bartolo I had that life. as a... You know, the exchange was maybe my favorite, which speaking of like things that people are proud of that they maybe shouldn't be, Spiro says right before that, I've never been married, but I've gone to couples therapy with three separate women. (laughs) (laughs) What else? I have have a bunch here that I'll I'll run down for you. One, I really enjoyed Taylor making reference to The Godfather's Tom Hagen with Mr. Axelrod insists on hearing bad news at once. That was a great callback. I mentioned Boyd quoting uh, Merchant of Venice. You mentioned Boyd quoting Boogie Nights. I think Dollar Bill just saying out loud, strip or retire. Um, in the middle of the street to Bobby Axelrod was was meaningful. Yeah, this podcast is fond of documenting the pop culture references in Billions, but there were an unusual amount of classics references. Yes. So Dollar Bill uh, says that he is going to strip or retire because that's the motto that was carved above the palestra in ancient Athens, which in case that was not enough, he proceeds to read the next sentence of the Wikipedia summary out loud, where they wrestled in the nude. It means that every man should have skin in the game. And then a little earlier, Dollar Bill has just made a pitch to Taylor about shorting this company that is about to be outed for animal cruelty. And he says the libtards will be mad at them for that. And then the street will just be mad at them for business reasons. And Taylor responds, you use that word to make me feel rage and tell myself not to hold that rage against your idea, which is smart and would work if I hadn't studied Agrippa. Pause which I have. (laughs) Incredible. Also, perfect snowflake triggering moment there, too. It felt like we were in the conversation on Twitter when when Dollar Bill, the deplorable Dollar Bill, said that. I think this show is wisely maybe holding to the policy that they're never going to name Trump, you know, by name. Mm -hmm. But they've done such a good job at capturing the dynamics of, you know, the new attorney general is this like weird hybrid of Jeff Sessions and Rex Tillerson, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly having an effect on the law enforcement side of things. And we haven't really gotten in on the hedge fund side of things, except for the fact that Todd Krakow slash Jonathan from Buffy is Treasury Secretary now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I hadn't put that together. That that was who plays him. Oh, yeah, that's Danny Strong. He's a great character actor, but I think it should always be remembered, or I will always know him as Jonathan from Buffy. But they haven't really explored, like, how the traders necessarily feel about this guy who's simultaneously like the ultimate capitalist, but also is like a guy who plays a businessman on TV. I feel like it'll be interesting as people let their attitudes towards the current political situation like slip in passing. I had another reference that I really wanted to throw in there, which is that, you know, Mike Birbiglia's character, Oscar Longstraw, is encouraging Taylor to stick around and listen to some VC pitches. And he says that someone who is some like table service app has a solid pitch. And then they respond. So your position in it must be thick as Nicki Minaj which I guess is thick with two C's, which does not sound natural coming out of Taylor's mouth, but I love that they worked it in there anyway. Yeah, the, the slightly forced. Somehow it was it was current, but I don't know. There was something slightly off hearing that. It, even Whether Taylor or or Oscar had said that, there, it just felt like that's a reference that maybe wouldn't have flown in that room, but maybe, maybe I'm off base. We did get one, I think, one truly signature Wags line, which is when Wendy visited his office and asked for the bottle, and she said, I miss the old days, don't you? And he said, oh, yeah, doing lines off hookers' hip bones, my cell phone in one hand. 
and then he was interrupted. What was in the other hand? Like, we can only imagine. <laughs> Probably not a bottle. So yeah, that was a good one. What, what else is on your list? Anything else? Well, one thing was also in the couples therapy scene where they're arguing over quotes from Cool Hand Luke and Wendy says, actually, both of you are right because these two actors said the two different versions of the line. And I had in my notes that Wendy knowing Cool Hand Luke by heart is the most male fantasy thing this show has ever done. <laughs> yes, I spotted it immediately. Yes, the character is already something kind of a of a male fantasy, although I think the show treats her really well. That was just the most like, I don't know if this is natural for this character, but I know that the writers really wanted her to to have that moment. Uh, I had one more, which I thought was sort of a sort of a poetic note. You know, usually this space is is slotted for the jokes, the pop culture references like we cited, but this is Chuck to Wendy. How can this sustain you giving all of yourself to both of us? And there, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that the impossibility of the Wendy character and the way that she straddles the two primary figures of the story and the way that she's wedged between them at all times is such an interesting dynamic. And it is slightly implausible, I think, to imagine that she would continue working in the way that she did while also being married to Chuck Rhodes. But I don't know the way that that was phrased and the sort of there's a little bit of a quiet sadness to Chuck this season. You know, the the problems with his father and him trying to position himself as a moral man doing immoral things. I thought there was something beautiful about that. Yeah, I would like to offer a counterpoint to maybe one of the house positions of this pod. So uh, feel free to at me, Bill Simmons fans or actually don't. But, you know, I know Bill is more of a Bill and Mal both are both Team Axe over Team Chuck. And I do agree that Chuck is kind of a loathsome person, but I feel more personal sympathy for him. I find him a little bit of the underdog in this situation. I do not approve of the ethics of these this whole hedge fund ecosystem. And ultimately, I think I'm going to advocate for bringing justice to hedge fund guys, even if it's in this like weird backwards compromised way. But yeah, I I really do feel for Chuck. And I think he kind of has a more convincing emotional conflict going on than Axe, who has this like bizarrely frictionless divorce with Lara, who is still MIA going on. Yeah, hopefully it stays that way. Uh, We won't have to add Lara to the LVP this week because Lara did not make an appearance, mercifully. Who was your MVP, though, before we get to that? My MVP was Taylor because they had a plot line that was totally divorced from the Chuck-Axe conflict, which is automatically a plus because I doubt there will be any winners in the long run there. And they got this really interesting, you know, Billions is a show about people with billions of dollars. And I think it was perhaps inevitable that they would venture out to the Bay Area and see who from there would fit in their ecosystem. They're obviously getting a Russian oligarch sometime later in the season, which we're still waiting on with bated breath. But I also appreciated that through that plot line, Billions was able to keep up its uh, restaurant name dropping, even if it was outside of its New York City comfort zone. <laughs> Shout out to State Bird Provisions in San Francisco. Yes, absolutely. And I just thought it was really cool to get another side of their life and their personality. Yeah, I, I, I liked Taylor, too. Taylor was at the top of my list, particularly because I thought that plot line was well handled and, as you stated, divorced from the typical machinations of the show. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Dollar Bill, though, who I just think was just a purely entertaining television show character this week. And, you know, I think there's a lot of longing for him to just kind of drop the bomb on somebody on a frequent basis. And who better than Spiros, who he just repeatedly dunked on, even when Spiros somehow won, it felt like Dollar Bill had the upper hand. So I'll go Dollar Bill. So I'm going to disagree with you and segue into the LVP because my LVP of the week was a tie between Spiros and Dollar Bill. Oh, I don't goodness. think I don't think anyone won there. No. I mean, first of all, just in terms of like the hard resolution of there, Spiros 
obviously loses because he gets his precious baby German sports car publicly fucked up in humiliating and angering fashion and distressing fashion as well. Dollar Bill, you know, I feel like the the way to gain the upper hand, there's a lot of short-term satisfaction there, but maybe don't commit attempted vehicular manslaughter in public. Like, uh, I don't he, know. He knew what speed he was traveling at. You know, I don't think there was any risk that Spiros was going down in a ball of flames. It was more just like, just know who's in charge here, man. Your 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 car is not as important as my my pride. That was I, that seemed to be the message. I just think there's some legal liability there. I also <laughs> think if Axe and Wags clearly like personally prefer Dollar Bill, but if they're serious about maintaining the peace there, he's probably going to have to replace the car. Also, just it was such a stupid and pointless argument that was obviously incredibly enjoyable to watch. But I'm not going to call anyone involved in that fight the winner of the week. Okay, fair enough. Uh, my LVP this week is. You know, it's 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 a tough one. I was not a big fan of the amount of time we spent with Dr. Ari Gilbert. I don't really care about that character, and he was just kind of a, a human MacGuffin who was there wedged to push story along. And I, I understand that especially episodic television really needs figures like this, but that actor is neither very compelling to me nor was that character didn't seem sort of crucial at the time when we first met him and the way that he was positioned in this episode. I thought it was just kind of fine but, like, lightly confusing. So... Sorry, Dr. Ari Gilbert, you're, you're my guy. Brief look ahead to, to next week. What do we think is going to happen, Allison? Well, I don't know if it's going to happen, but one thing I would like to see is that this episode had an unusual amount of, like, very direct foreshadowing. You mentioned the exchange in the hallway where, you know, Chuck directly asked Wendy, how can you sustain yourself and or how is this going to last? And she basically says it isn't. That's one of several times in the episode I think Wags and Wendy have a really interesting sit down after he offers her a full bottle of liquor uh, <laughs> where, you know, she's basically saying, I wish I could broker a piece between Chuck and Wags. And he says, you know, that's never going to happen. And I think it's really interesting that obviously he's invested in the success of Axe over Wags and that dispute, but he appears to be relating to Wendy just as a friend who is concerned for her well-being and basically says, I don't understand how you haven't burned up in this by now. And she basically says, I don't have a choice. But there's a lot of unusually explicit allusions to the untenability of her position that hints that it's going to come to a head very soon. And she's also obviously distraught over the death of Bob Benson, who I will never call by his actual character name. It's affecting her professional life. She doesn't successfully either assuage Taylor last week from their ethical conflicts. She doesn't successfully broker a peace between Dollar Bill and Spiros. Axe and Wags don't seem to be noticing and criticizing her job performance, but I think we as viewers should be taking stock of how, you know, she's not going to be able to hold this line forever. Yeah, even though she is that that wedge that I was describing earlier, I'd love to have a Wendy Bottle episode, you know, maybe like an Origins episode where she shows us some of that story she told about when she met Chuck and maybe how she spends her free time. I find myself always wanting more of her in every show. Maybe that's just because Maggie Siff should have her own show, but... It would be nice if they devoted a little bit more time. Somehow, I suspect we're just going to get a whole lot of Axe and Chuck next week, though. Allison, thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, thank you for chatting Billions. All the listeners to the Recapables, Billions, I promise that Bill and Mal will be back next week. In the meantime, I uh, appreciate you sticking around for this hostile takeover. Of course. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion, songfinch.com. 